All right, well, let's turn to Acts 17 together, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22 is where we'll be. <clears throat> now, last week we got into this section a little bit. We went to verse 24, but I want us to do a little bit of overlap and back up to 22 and discuss these verses again to get us back into the mindset of what's going on. So would someone like to read for us Acts 17, verses 22 to 24? Who can read that for us? Okay, go ahead. And Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus. 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 I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. All right, so Paul was ready to give a defense of the one true God in the city of Athens, which is in the country of Greece, which is on the continent of. Which is on the planet of... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so Paul was there, ready to give a defense of the one true God, and he was obviously having to confront their idolatry, right? This is a city full of idols, full of carved images and temples. We see it right from the get-go where he says, you know, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Uh, temples were a big part of their culture. Uh, temples for idols, and what Paul is going to do in this sermonette, I'm not going to call it a sermon because then, you know, you'll expect my sermons to be this short. And I just can't do that. This is a, a sermonette. Uh, what Paul's doing here is contrasting truth and idolatry. And he's pitting Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Christians, he's pitting Yahweh up against idols. And we see uh, in this section, as we read through the verses here, and, and it, we don't know if this is the whole sermon, if this is an excerpt from the sermon, but what we know is Paul said these words. Um, and what we have here and what we examine is Paul's approach of showing that the one true God is immaterial. He is not made of matter like the idols. He's made of no physical substance. Um, Almost one year ago was my debate that we had here, and that was the subject of the debate. Is God immaterial? Uh, it's very important. If we believe He's material, that has implications, doesn't it? What, what would be some of the implications of that if He was made of physical matter? Melissa, could you shut that door? Yeah, He couldn't be eternal, right? All physical things have to have a beginning. They have to come into being. What else? Hearing lots of things. <laughs> Travis, what did you say? Okay, yeah, you'd be locked in, right? Because if you're made of physical matter, you can't be in more than one place at a time. What did you say, Andy? Okay, and what do you mean by that? Oh, same thing. Good. Omnipresent. Yeah, imminent through his omnipresence. Good. What were you saying, Rex? Oh, same thing. Good. Um, how about... Age. Yeah, there would be decay. There would be signs of wearing down. Um, that's what happens with physical matter. All physical things are subject to decay, right? 
so if God is material, then that's a big issue. And Paul's making the argument here that the one true God is immaterial. He's making the argument that God is eternally unchanging in this section too, as we, we read through his words, which we will hear in a moment. God is eternally unchanging. And remember with the Greeks and their philosophers, they loved new ideas. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, how they were really big into the next big philosophical venture. <laughs> What's a new novel idea we can get excited about? Well, God is not a novel idea. He's the original, right? Um, God is and always will be. He's going to present God as absolutely unique. Absolutely unique. There is none other like the God of all. He's the creator and he's the judge. And we're going to see that very clearly in this sermonette. Hi, Mike and Beth. Good to see you. Are you a little late because you were skinning a, an animal that you shot? No. Oh. Okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so, um, and it's important too, as Paul talks about God as creator, he's going to spend several uh, verses here. Like I said, it's a short sermon. It's like one paragraph. And he's going to spend about half of that section talking about God as creator, which is important because the Greeks had no concept of being created. In fact, the Greeks in this day believed that they sprung up from the ground. There was no record of the Greek people immigrating to Europe. You know, the, the other people around there, the Italians and others, they had records of their ancestry and how people migrated to that area. The Greeks didn't have that, and they concluded that they sprung up from the ground. They were self-sufficient through and through. There was no creator on which they depended, but they were self-existent. Well, Paul says, you have a creator, and he's your judge. That's where he's going with this message. And we, of course, know that Paul is going to have a different method here than he did in the synagogues. He's not talking to Jews, therefore, there's no Old Testament citation in this sermon. There's no reference uh, explicitly to an Old Testament verse, though there's lots of Old Testament in this. They just didn't know it. Um, he's not pointing to Jesus as Messiah. With, in the synagogues, it was always, Jesus is your Messiah. Well, what does the word Messiah mean to a bunch of pagans, right? Greeks had no concept of Messiah. They weren't waiting for a Messiah. So his approach is quite different. Now, um, we talked a little bit about this last week where he points out, you have an altar with the inscription, this is verse uh, 23, to an unknown God. This is an interesting thing, and I want to ask you, it's kind of an abstract question, so I need to word it carefully. Um, was Paul here equating the unknown God with Yahweh? Because look at what it says. Look at verse 23 again. He says, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Was he saying that they were actually worshiping Yahweh, but they were just doing so in ignorance? What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, good. Were they worshiping him, though, even though he, he was unknown to them? Were they still doing it unknowingly? Rex? No, what I got from it was the fact that they had so many gods and idols and stuff that they didn't want to leave one out and irritate them and get, bring them bad luck and bad omens and everything else. And so by, we'll just have a plaque that says to 
to the unknown God. Yeah. So that if he comes along and they don't know who he is, yeah. But as far as Yes, and would Yahweh say, yeah, you covered your bases, good job. <laughs> okay, all right. So, so yeah, what, what you guys are saying is right. And I want you to remember this because this kind of idea is going to come up again in a few verses. Paul's not saying that they were actually worshiping Yahweh. He's using this instance of something in their culture, something in their worship. He's taking that example to point out a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is that they didn't know God. Right? He's simply just pointing out a spiritual reality that they were ignorant. They, they did not know God in the way that they should know God. Um, so I want you to hang on to that thought as we go through the, the study tonight. Um, and I also want you to think about Romans 1 as we go through this. Because there have been many people who have read through Paul's ser sermon here and thought, this is the same guy that wrote Romans 1? This sounds quite a bit different than Romans 1. And you'll see that as we get into these verses. But what we'll discover is that Romans 1 and Acts 17 are complementary. They're not opposed to each other, but they're complementary. Kind of like how Paul and James are sometimes pitted against each other. They say Paul teaches faith and James teaches works. Um, no, they're complementary. They're standing back-to-back -back fighting two different false teachings, and so they have two different emphases, 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 whatever it is. Um, they, they have two different focuses there, and, but it's the same truth that's being defended, all right? And we'll see that in tonight's lesson with Romans 1. So let's go ahead and pick up in verse 24 again and read the whole sermonette in one shot. Would someone read verse 24 to verse 31 for us? 24 to 31. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead. God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proofs to all men. Did you skip? You skipped verses. Oh, I thought you said and. Oh, gotcha. No, no, through. Sorry. Okay. 24 through. <laughs> so that, that's, a, that's a really, really tiny sermonette. <laughs> Okay, what an amazing sermonette. Well, uh, the first point, there are two big points in this um, sermon. I mean, Paul is using this really valuable opportunity to be taken to this public square, basically, that all the uh, Athenians knew about. 
He's using it to emphasize two aspects of God's nature. The first one is that God is creator, and the second one is that God is judge. His emphasis on God as creator is really verses 24 to 29. And that's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on tonight, that God is creator. And it starts off uh, there in verse 24 saying, God made the world and all things in it. Very plainly teaching that there is a creator, the one true God, and he is separate from his creation. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 is a real good thesis statement for this, uh, where it says, the divine nature uh, is not like gold or silver or stone. It's not like an image formed by the art and thought of man. <laughs> Those are two distinct ideas, uh, what we can come up with and who God is. Because who God is exists fundamentally separate from all of his creation. God is, and he exists eternally, apart from anything we could come up with with our little pea-picking brains. Okay, so uh, God is distinct from creation. And in verse 24, we start seeing some of the qualities, some of the aspects of God as creator. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. It's more than a does not, it's also a cannot, right? He cannot dwell in temples made with hands. Can you think of somewhere else in Scripture where we hear that truth proclaimed specifically with temples? Yeah, 1 Kings 8.27. The book of 1 Kings, <clears throat> when uh, Solomon had built the temple, he makes an amazing statement about the nature of God. He says... Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. <laughs> uh, all the heavens can't contain God. There's a thought for you. He's infinite. Nothing can contain God, much less uh, a temple that we build with hands. Paul's just echoing this Old Testament thought. Again, he's not explicitly referencing the Old Testament, but we can see over and over again this foundation of the Old Testament showing up in Paul's teaching. Uh, God is not contained in a temple. God is also the source of life. Look at verse 25. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. I love that phrasing. Um, God doesn't need anything or anyone because, it says in verse 25, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he's the one, verse 26, who made all the nations on the face of the earth from one man. He is the source of life. And look down at verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist. So God as creator is more than just the one event of he spoke and all things came to be. It's the continued existence of all people. We're continually dependent on God, aren't we? Every movement, every breath, uh, just the mere existence that we have is dependent on God. He is without any need whatsoever because he has life in himself. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 5 about this? About God having life in himself? Okay, we'll have to turn there. We'll have to turn there. Just back one book, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And let's look at 
verses 25 and 26. John 5, 25 and 26. Someone want to read that for us? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming now is when the devil hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. All right. The Father has life in himself, and so does the Son. Um, you can read this, and it can sound like, oh, well, Jesus didn't have life in himself, and then he did because the Father gave it to him, and then he started to have life in himself. But that wouldn't make any sense, would it? Because then he wouldn't have life in himself. <laughs> you, you can't give someone uh, life in himself. That means you're giving him life from someone outside of himself. What Jesus is saying here is that God, the triune God, has life in himself. And within the Trinity, Father is not the Father's not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, so on and so forth. And they have roles within the Trinity. The Father has appointed the Son to have life in himself that there's a structure within the Trinity and that the Son submits to the Father, but they all have life in themselves. The Father and the Son and the Spirit all have life in themselves. Uh, God has life in himself. That's what's being stated here. So God, as the creator of all, is the source of life, not the one who was given life from another. Because what does that do to our view of God if we believe he was given life from another? Makes him like us, right? <laughs> Yeah, it does. It does. If God was given life from someone outside of himself, then uh, he ceases to be God. And I, I questioned uh, my opponent on this very verse in the debate. So it's uh, something if you haven't looked at, you might want to check out. But, uh, but yeah, God is like a generator. He generates life. But unlike our generators that we have to charge up before we can use them, He's fully charged all the time and never runs out. Isn't that cool? Uh, he has that power in himself, that life in himself. And did you see the literal interpretation of Genesis in there? The literal interpretation of Genesis is found in verse 26. What's in there? Not, not John 5, 26. We're back in Acts 17, sorry. Acts 17, 26. Made us all from one man. Uh, your translation might say one blood. The Greek actually doesn't have a word for uh, in this verse. It doesn't use the word man or blood. It just says from one. He made from one all nations that are on the earth. Um, but we recognize that that means we all come from the same origin, don't we? And when you read the Genesis account, that's Adam. From one, he made all people. This, of course, of course, excludes any boasting in ethnicity or any boasting in skin pigment, which is a pretty relevant teaching for today, that uh, you know, the Christian church recognizes we all are one race. There aren't multiple races. There's one race, the human race. That's it. We just have different shades, don't we? A little more pigment or a little less pigment. And as far as uh, science is concerned... Uh, the more uh, melanin, melanin or melatonin? I always get those confused. Melanin, oh. right? <laughs> okay. You guys don't get it confused. Wow. Uh, the more melanin you have, the better off you are. And so um, we're the ones who are the inferior <laughs> uh, because we don't have as much. 
Um, and, but when it comes to God's perspective, there's one race, the human race, all made in his image. And we are all totally dependent on God because each one of us, no matter where we live, no matter what color we are, no matter what our nationality is, in him we live and move and have our being. We are dependent on the source of life for that. Thoughts on God being the source of life or questions? You guys knew that already, I guess, huh? You think that's a relevant message to our pagan culture today? Because we say, ha, those dumb Greeks, they believe they sprung up from the ground, idiots. <laughs> what do evolutionists believe? We sprung up from the pond. <laughs> that we're self-sufficient, that we're self-existent. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, if you lose God as creator, you lose everything. You lose it all. You got to have uh, Genesis straightened out. If you don't have Genesis 1 through 12, you don't have anything. You really don't. That's what, sometimes when we're witnessing, we forget about that. We start telling people they need to be saved. I have people say, from what? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to go back. You got to go back and start with Genesis. Paul's Paul starting with Genesis, but he's doing it right. in a, just a different way. God created us. They have to be, yeah, they have to reckon with the reality that there's a creator to whom they are accountable. Because if he's not the creator, if he's not authority in that regard, then yeah, what are we being saved from? Who cares? Right? But if we're accountable to our creator, that's an issue that we've got to address. Okay, so as he's talking about God as creator, he, God is infinite. He's not contained by temples. God is the source of life. And then a third aspect, God is the sovereign ruler over all the earth. Look at the second half of verse 26, where he says, um, He created every nation out of one man, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now, this can really get you onto a crazy study. Uh, I found some stuff today when I was uh, studying that I had never heard these theological discussions on, on some of it. Um, and I don't really want to tell you too much because I don't want you to get onto it and go down this black hole of a, of a theological study because so much of it is speculation. But it is a, an amazing thought that God has determined the boundaries and the allotments of the nations of the earth. And all people come from one family. We already discussed they come from Adam. But what family do all people come from? Yeah, oh, very good, Rex. You get a gold star. Good job. <laughs> Noah's family, specifically Noah's three sons. Who were they? Japheth, good. Now let's go back and look at that, okay? Because this is what Paul has in view here. Back to Genesis 10. All the way back to Genesis 10. And we'll look at Genesis 11 a little bit too. But... Again, even though Paul is talking to a pagan audience, Paul's not abandoning the uh, truths of Genesis. He's just packaging it in a different way. And he has in view here what took place after the flood. Uh, some amazing verses in here, amazing things to study. But let's look at Genesis 10, um, verse 1 and, and 5. 
One and five. Not one through five, one and five. Who can get that? Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Jacob. And sons were born to them after the flood. From these the coastlands peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. All right. Separated out, dispersed according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. Now there's a little bit of overlay in history with chapter 10 and chapter 11, because what's the issue in chapter 11 with languages? There was only one, right? And so you can't have people being separated by languages before there were multiple languages. So what you've got going on is chapter 11 kind of goes back in history a little bit. Chapter 10 gets ahead of chapter 11 just a tad as it's describing what happened to all the people. Uh, Look at the last verse of chapter 10, verse 32. It says, These are the families of the sons of Noah, because it's listed them all off, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. The nations were created from this family, and they were separated to their appointed places. Now let's look in chapter 11. Let's look at that Babel event. Verses 6 through 9, Genesis 11, 6 through 9. Who would read that for us? Let's see what happened with these people. Genesis 11, 6 through 9. Go ahead, Jerry. The Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they all have the same language. This is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go now and there. Confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from the, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. All right. God is in charge of moving and placing the nations. Twice in chapter 10, twice here in chapter 11, it says God dispersed or scattered the people. And Paul's point in his sermonette is that God determined the appointed times and the boundaries of the habitation of men. Uh, So that's what's being stated. Uh, Also, Deuteronomy 32, before we go all the way back to Acts, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 This is the song of Moses, and Moses in his song talks about this aspect of God sovereignly moving people around, and Deuteronomy 32.8 is where things can really start to get weird if you fixate on what is being said here, because we don't know entirely the meaning of this, and there are some people who have built entire theologies out of this one verse out of speculation as to what Moses means here. But let's go ahead and look at it together. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. So I want to read that one verse for us. Okay. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided all mankind, He said, He set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. All right. Does any of yours, uh, any of you have a translation that ends verse 8 with the sons of God instead of the sons of Israel? You do? What translation are you using? No, not in ASB. 
ESV, okay. So the ESV has sons of God instead of sons of Israel. And when the Bible, or the Old Testament in particular, uses the phrase sons of God, what is it typically in reference to? Angels. 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 So you can see, you can start to maybe see how this gets a little weird when you think about, overthink it, that God separated all of mankind and set the boundaries of the people according to the number of angels. Now that can get kind of weird, can't it? Uh, well, actually, the, the most common interpretation, right now anyway, is that there's a different classification besides angels for sons of God. There are some that believe there are these beings that exist somewhere between God himself and angels. They're higher than the angels. They're heavenly beings. And they're called gods, but they're not the one true God. And that it, that's the divine council by which God rules the entire earth. And there are 70 of them. So uh, there's lots and lots of stuff out there you can read. And I don't encourage you to do that. <laughs> but, but that exists. And it's a strange thing. Um, What's also strange about that is in Genesis 10, where we just were, from Noah's family came all these nations. If you count up those peoples, do you know how many there are? Seventy. <laughs> okay, so things can get kind of weird with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so what happens is... There's this view, and I'm just going to tell you the whole thing. Uh, there's this view that says, okay, in Genesis 10, it's the table of contents for all the nations. It's called the table of the 70. Here are the 70 nations. And um, when you start reading the rest of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82, it talks about a heavenly council in their view. And there are 70 members of this heavenly council who are heavenly beings. And these are to oversee the affairs of the earth. But God was seeking to bring his kingdom on earth. Therefore, he called out Israel. And how many judges were there in the Sanhedrin in Israel? Seventy. So God was looking to establish his kingdom through Israel with the Sanhedrin. But they failed and broke the covenant. So Jesus comes along. And how many disciples did he send out two by two? <laughs> it gets weird, I'm telling you. And so, and so uh, Israel failed. Now it's through the church that God is bringing his kingdom on earth. And 70, uh, that whole number is central to the whole thing. And there are a lot of inconsistencies with it. But it's kind of intriguing, though, too, because uh, it's in there. I mean, that stuff's in there. you got to look at it and think, okay, what's going on here? But uh, I don't encourage you to study any more than what I just said. Rex. Is that where the 70 come from? Oh, the Quorum of the Seventy? Yeah, I'm sure that is. I'm sure they're, they have one of those things in mind. Yep. Yep. It seems like God has been taking nations and rolling dice. No, I, it, I think what, what adherence to that view would say is that God is causing the nations to reflect heaven. So he created 70 nations. And before the Sanhedrin, remember when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, told him to get help? How many, how many judges were under him? Seventy. Seventy. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right, enough of that. Um, 
It is, right. Yeah, that's the, uh, the origin of that. Yep. Yep. So, I probably shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> but now you know that that's a view that exists, okay? And, and they say, look, so what Paul is doing in Acts 17 then is he's saying uh, God is replacing... Uh, it's a reclamation project where God is reclaiming his creation, bringing heaven to earth through the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, we would agree with a lot of that, but we're seeing it from a different perspective than that really weird view of the divine council. So um, what we have, I think, if we go back to Acts 17, you can flip back there and look at verse 26. What we have is Paul basically, at a minimum, he's saying to them, there is a creator. He made all people. He is sovereign in his rule over them insofar as, uh, or to the extent of, rather, he put people and nations where they are and established their boundaries. He is in sovereign control and he has sovereign involvement over all of his creatures. He's in full control. Okay? So you've got God is infinite, God is the source of life, and God is sovereign. That is what Paul is establishing here when he's talking about God as creator. Thoughts or questions on that whole thing? Not the crazy worldview thing, but uh, what Paul is doing, that thing. Okay? And so Paul then puts forth, God is creator. Now your role, verse 27, is to be reconciled with your creator. Paul is, put, is, is challenging them here. Uh, saying, he established, God established the times, the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. When God dispersed the nations after the flood, and he set the nations out and determined their boundaries, and he scattered them, he put them in their spots, he gave them those languages, he was sovereign in his involvement over that. When he did that, it was that they might seek him and know him. But you guys know the story. Did that happen? No. <laughs> the world was still dark after the flood, wasn't it? You read chapter 10, chapter 11 of Genesis. It's still a dark world. And then God creates out of that darkness the nation of Israel. Chapter 12, he calls Abraham. It talks about Israel being created out of nothing. <laughs> And that's basically what happened. The world was a dark place. There, was, there were no good materials on the earth for God to build a nation. But he brought them forth out of his grace. And uh, this is the, what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy when he says, look, you were the tiniest of all the peoples. You were sinful just like the rest. Uh, we read in the Old Testament that Abram's dad was serving what gods? pagan gods? Yeah. Abram's dad was out there as a pagan, worshiping all kinds of false deities. And out of darkness, God brought forth light. And so when he says in verse 27 that God dispersed the nations that they would seek after him, we know the reality is that they didn't do so. And that's still true today. And this is where I think Romans 1 is very complementary to this. Because Romans 1 talks about what? For the wrath of God is now revealed against all mankind... Who, what? Yes, that though they know God, they do not. Yeah, they don't worship Him. They don't. They don't submit to Him. So this is Paul's argument in Romans one that God has made it evident within them that they would seek after Him, but none do. 
Just like after the flood, he dispersed them that they would all go live for him in the nations, but they didn't. And so God is still calling out a people by his grace with no good raw materials. Just like he called out Abram out of pagan worship. So me and all of you, we were called out of darkness and transferred into light, weren't we? And so this is what God is doing among people is what he was doing then when he built the nation of Israel. And now as he builds his church, he's still doing the same thing, calling out of darkness and into light. Okay, Um, so Paul is putting that before them and saying, you need to be reconciled to your creator. You need to be reconciled to the one true God. Um, Albert Barnes said this, a commentator who lived and died a while ago. He said, God has given to each nation its proper opportunity to learn his character. Idolatry, therefore, is folly and wickedness, since it is possible to find out the existence of the one God from his works. Here's Paul in the midst of idolatry, all their pagan images and temples. And he's pointing out every nation has the proper opportunity from God to know him. So all your idolatry, it's foolishness. And he's going to use the R word with them, repent. You need to repent to know God. Okay. Then he says um, in verse 28, and this is where things get, start to get strange. Um, some of your own poets have said, for we are also are his children. Verse 29, being then the children of God. Were these pagans children of God? (laughs) How do we answer? These were idol worshipers. Were they children of God, according to this passage? Yeah, I mean, that's basically the only place we can land, right? Um, is that, yeah, I, they, they're not children of God in the sense that they were adopted through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's clear. They hadn't yet believed in Jesus. And Paul's consistent teaching, the very one preaching this message, is that we must be adopted through the gospel. Ephesians 1. Uh, there were certain people that were predestined to receive the adoption as sons. Adoption has to take place. So what Paul's doing, and this is like what he did with the altar that says to an unknown God. I want you to maybe think about what we talked about at the beginning, if you can. How Paul is taking something from their pagan worship, taking something from their culture to point out a reality. With the unknown God, he was taking that, not saying, you worship Yahweh, truly, you just don't know it. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, you're spiritually ignorant. He was making a point out of that. And with this, he's making a point. He's quoting their poets. And by the way, the line that he quotes comes from a poem talking about being Zeus's children. When he's using this line, he's not saying, yeah, Zeus and Yahweh are the same and they made us. And so we're all just children of Zeus slash Yahweh, whatever. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, there's, there's something in your conscience that's telling you We are dependent on God. He's pointing out a reality that we are the special creation of God. We are the image bearers of God. Um, Not that they've been adopted through the gospel, but that they are the special creation of Yahweh. 
the one true God who exists. Does that make sense to you? Is that halfway clearish? <laughs> kind of a challenging passage. You might run across some Latter-day Saints who will say, we are all Heavenly Father's children. Look what Paul said. I've had that conversation before. But that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying, because if they're going to take that approach, then you say, oh yeah, Paul did teach we were all Zeus's children. <laughs> Paul didn't believe we were Zeus's children, okay? Um, we have to recognize what Paul's doing in the, in the passage here. And as his special creation, again, Paul's whole point, we should turn from the folly of idolatry and worship the creator because we are God's special creation, human beings made in his image. So that is God as creator. And then the last two verses of this section are about God as judge. I'll read the two again. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So uh, as with God as creator, um, Paul here, when he talks about God as judge, he has some specific points. The first one in verse 30, God is a patient judge, isn't he? He overlooked the times of ignorance as the nations wandered in darkness and worshiped these idols that they made with gold and silver and wood, these thoughts of their own little brains. He's overlooking the times of ignorance by giving these people an opportunity to repent that day, Paul says. You've been so foolish, you Athenians, creating your little idols and temples. God has been so patient with you that he didn't strike you down. <laughs> overlooking these times of ignorance, repent, repent today. God has shown patience and God has declared as judge that all men should repent. All men everywhere. The gospel is going out to the world. It's not just for Israel. It's all men everywhere to repent. In verse 31, that God as the righteous judge will hold the entire world accountable through the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one through whom God will judge the world in righteousness. The epitome of righteousness, Jesus. We just read in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Jesus became to us the righteousness of God. And it's through that righteousness that God will judge the world. He talks about the resurrection here. Uh, that's where he ends. And that's going to... Uh, make people react that we'll read about in just a moment. But any thoughts or questions on God as judge, that little section of those two verses? Or Paul's whole presentation, any questions on that? <clears throat> you guys don't have a lot of questions tonight, making me nervous. Don't know what you're thinking. No, no, stop it. <laughs> Abandon that. Abort, abort. I know there were philosophers to a large degree. I'm just wondering if they understood repent. Hmm. Even though Paul did go deep into analysis of what it was mm -hmm. and what they should repent from out of all these idols. But I'm just wondering in their own uh, free will life. <laughs> 
Yeah. They were able to, to most of them would not comprehend. Well, it, it's a good word for philosophers because the word in Greek is metanoia. The word meta means basically to turn or to change. And noia comes from the word um, noose. And I actually, I think I mentioned this in a sermon recently. It's the word noose, N-O-U-S, noose. That's the Greek word for mind. So philosophers are very familiar with that word. The Greek philosophers were, the word for mind. The word repent means to change your mind. And, uh, you know, at a very basic level, they would understand that their thinking was wrong. Um, and they would need lots of teaching from that point forward, wouldn't they? And lots of guidance. But we don't have any real record, any biblical record anyway, of what happened in Athens after this. We're going to read a couple verses here of what happened, but there's no church of Athens, no baptisms. Uh, Paul didn't stay there for 18 months like he did in Corinth. Uh, he just called him to repent and he didn't get, you know, stoned and thrown in prison either. It was just kind of a fizzled out thing. <laughs> this sermon is so famous in the Bible. Everybody knows about the sermon at Mars Hill. But then it just fizzles. Diana. So in the Bible says Yeah, yeah, you can't have one without the other. Faith and repentance. They go hand in hand because you know when we when we turn to God, we are by definition turning from something. Right? We're going one direction, which wasn't to him. <laughs> we were going away from him. And when we turn to him in faith, we're turning from something. And so faith is the aspect of going to and repentance is the aspect of going from. And you have to be doing both at the same time. Uh, some who want to really cheapen that word believe or, or the word faith will sometimes present it as, well, there are people who you know, bring their old worldview in and they make a profession of faith and they, all they understood and all they knew was that they believed in Jesus and they lived the same way for the rest of their lives until they died, but they were Christians. Now, that's a very complex subject, and it's different for every person, so I don't want to oversimplify it. But we have to recognize when you turn to God, you're turning from something. For the Thessalonians, it was idols, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God. That's what they did. And when we believe, if we truly understand the gospel... It's not that we turn away from all of our sin and idolatry to never, ever do it again, because you've done it today already, haven't you? <laughs> uh, you've served your old idols and your flesh today. It's not that we never, ever do it again, but we recognize that Jesus is Lord and prize Him over all those other things. He is the one on whom we, in whom we rest. He's the one that we trust. Um, he's the one that we serve. Because he's changed our hearts and oriented our hearts toward him. So um, repentance and faith are two ways of explaining the same act. Yeah, yes, amen. Yes, amen. I know you said one was two and one was. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same, it's the same um, the same event. If we ha if you have faith, you have repentance. And if you have repentance, you have faith. Yeah. Yeah. 
people who want to try to separate them and say you can have faith without repentance, that doesn't make any sense. Because <laughs> we're, we're finite beings. We can only go one way at a time. We can't go two opposing directions at the same time, right? So you're either going um, turned away from God or you're turned to God by His grace. All right, well, let's look at these last couple of verses here, 32 and 33. Would someone like to read those for us? Last two verses of chapter 17. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some enjoined him and believed, among whom also were Diana said, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. That was good for you. It builds character. <laughs> so um, I think it's fair to say, even though he doesn't give us percentages here. It's fair to say that the majority did not believe. It's kind of presented like, this is what the people did, these two bad actions. But then there were some who believed, right? Uh, a minority believed. Uh, what are those first two categories of what people did with the resurrection? Some did what and others did what? So Which is what? What does that mean? Yeah, mocked, right? And then what about the others? What did they do? They procrastinated, basically, right? Yeah, where it's like they said they wanted to hear more, but they didn't repent. They didn't believe. Um, they felt like they needed more evidence, perhaps, or that they needed something extra. But there they were with the Apostle Paul hearing the gospel, and they chose not to repent. Uh, so Paul went out of their midst, verse 33 says. But then there were others who believed. And we get two examples here. Uh, one source in old, old church history says that this was a husband and wife. But the text, of course, doesn't say that. You can thank it if you want, if it makes you feel better. That's not a heretical thought. Uh, just know that it's not an inspired thought either. Um, and we have a record from Eusebius. This looks like it was printed in the 1970s, doesn't it? <laughs> it was. Uh, Eusebius lived in the 4th century. He's one of the earliest church historians. And according to him, again, this isn't inspired, but um, he talks about the record at Athens. And he says, besides the Areopagite, uh, this man, Dionysius, Dionysius, is that what we're going to say? Uh, besides him, whom Luke has recorded in Acts after Paul's address to the Athenians, uh, as the first that believed, is mentioned by Dionysius, another of the ancients, and pastor at the church of Corinth as the first bishop of the church of Athens. Uh, long sentence that was written weirdly. Basically, Eusebius is saying that this guy, Dionysius, that we read about here, ended up being the first bishop of the church at Athens. That there was a church at Athens that developed shortly thereafter, presumably, and this guy became the overseer for that church. Now, is it true? Maybe. <laughs> um, fourth century, it's pretty early. He had good sources. Eusebius is recognized as a pretty uh, reliable source for church history. And it's a nice thing to think. So you can think that, all right? Uh, that he became 
uh, a leader in Athens with the believers there. And that's the end of Athens. From there he goes to Corinth. Again, without persecution, but also without any baptisms or any kind of exciting things. It just kind of faded out, just like that. Diana. Was he No, Josephus is actually first century. So, yeah, Josephus is a really reliable record, um, particularly because he's Jewish, too. He wasn't even a Christian. Um, Eusebius was a Christian, and he's about 200 years, uh, 300 years after Josephus. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? You have five minutes or more. I don't care. Hey, well, I hope you learned something there and not just strange beliefs about the number 70. <laughs> it's good for me to expose you guys to some stuff sometimes. You know, you got to know about that stuff. You might run across it. And you could say, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about that. Pretty weird. I did do an article on my website uh, probably a year and a half ago on some of that stuff. Uh, it's actually a series of three articles, I believe. If you want to look that up, the Divine Council. I, I did a, an analysis of that. It's a view that's based off Psalm 82, largely. The Divine Council, interesting stuff. A guy named Michael Heiser is the big guy who promotes that. Uh, he wrote a book called The Unseen Realm. So if you see The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, that's what that's about. And you've probably seen um, the Bible Project videos on YouTube. They were famous, like really popular for a while. They did overviews of the Bible, of each book of the Bible, where they kind of like wrote out cartoons and you did an overview chapter by chapter. They're really helpful videos. Well, they also made these topical videos and they made a topical video about the Divine Council. And they were, those episodes were written in part by Michael Heiser. Um, that's what made me write my articles in response to that. Um, just to bring some clarity, hopefully, to that situation. But. Yeah, if you just if you go to my website and search the Divine Council, yeah, you'll see it there. I think it's a three-parter. But basically, I gave the four major views on Psalm 82 um, about who this group is. It talks about Yahweh takes his seat in the council, and he judges in the midst of them. Well, what is that talking about? There are four major views on that. Okay. <laughs> Pretty weird stuff. 